Welcome to the preaching ministry of Nest Baptist, where we seek to equip people to love God and love others. Whether you are a longtime follower of Jesus or are exploring what faith in Him might look like, we are glad you're here. It is our prayer that by listening to this message, you may better understand who God is, what He has done for you, and what that means for your life. May all of this lead to the worship of God and be for His glory. We're going to be reading from uh, Revelation 5 this morning. Um, It's going to be up there. There it is. So the last couple verses, verse 12, the last half of it or so, is the whole congregation of heaven speaking together. So I'd like you guys to do that part with me when we get there. And then the last half of verse 13 is the whole universe responding to God. And I would like you guys also to do that with me, if you'd be so kind. Because that sounded really beautiful last time that you did that, I must say. Uh, Let's read. And if you want to stand, stand. If you feel more comfortable sitting or standing is tough, uh, enjoy sitting. Then I saw in the right hand of him who was seated on the throne a scroll, written within and on the back, sealed with seven seals. And I saw a mighty angel proclaiming with a loud voice, Who is worthy to open the scroll and break its seals? And no one in heaven or on earth or under the earth was able to open the scroll or to look into it. And I began to weep loudly because no one was found worthy to open the scroll or to look into it. And one of the elders said to me, Weep no more. Behold, the lion of the tribe of Judah, the root of David, has conquered so that he can open the scroll and its seven seals. And between the throne and the four living creatures and among the elders, I saw a lamb standing as though it had been slain, with seven horns and with seven eyes, which are the seven spirits of God sent out into all the earth. And he went and took the scroll from the right hand of him who was seated on the throne. And when he had taken the scroll, the four living creatures and the 24 elders fell down before the Lamb, each holding a harp, and golden bowls full of incense, which are the prayers of the saints. And they sang a new song, saying, Worthy are you to take the scroll and to open its seals, for you were slain, and by your blood you ransomed people for God, from every tribe and language and people and nation. And you have been made a kingdom and priests to our God and they shall reign on the earth. Then I looked, and I heard around the throne and the living creatures and the elders the voice of many angels, numbering myriads of myriads and thousands of thousands, saying with a loud voice, Worthy is the Lamb who was slain to receive power and wealth and wisdom and might and honor and glory and blessing. And I heard every creature in heaven and on earth and under the earth and in the sea and all that is in them saying, To him who sits on the throne and to the Lamb be blessing and honor and glory and might forever and ever. And the four living creatures said, Amen. And the elders fell down and worshipped. As we um, make our way today through the fifth chapter of Revelation, Let's uh, think again about the literary nature of uh, this book that we are studying. Uh, Remember, first of all, that it's 
First and foremost, it's, it's a letter. A letter written to seven churches, most likely within John's preaching circuit. So everything written in that letter was understandable to their first century ears. But Revelation also needs to be understood as a prophecy. And like most Old Testament prophecy, there is a lot of preaching and foretelling rather than just foretelling. Revelation's prophetic words intended to inspire the church to faithful discipleship. In other words, yes, Revelation indeed may speak of things to come, but the purest ambition of the book is to create overcomers, overcomers who, who live their lives on earth with a better and fuller understanding of heaven. And then on top of Revelation being a letter and a prophecy, it's also an apocalypse. It's a literary composition written in apocalyptic style, a very popular style in John's day. And because of its apocalyptic nature, we do well, so we do well to think more theologically than literally when we try to make sense of it. Apocalyptic literature contains a rich tapestry of numerical and pictorial symbolism that's intended more to arouse emotions and inspire a deeper devotion to God. If we try to interpret it too literally, we end up with a lot of muddled confusion and inadvertently we actually end up in danger of missing its real point. Now, please hear me correctly. Revelation does show us where human history is headed. Jesus will literally return from heaven for his own and to execute judgment against his enemies. But when we see him, I don't think that he will literally have seven eyes on his face and seven horns sticking out of his head, as our passage literally says in 5 verse 6 today. Likewise, even the vision of God sitting on a throne must be understood more theologically than literally. The main point being that God is ruling this universe as its creator. Not that he is actually seated in one particular location, for that understanding then would contradict the truth that God is spirit. Being omnipresent, God is not limited to a single location, but he is still truly the sovereign ruler of all. And because he is our great creator and sovereign ruler, he deserves all our praise. That was the point of Revelation chapter 4. Revelation 5 will now flesh out more of this heavenly scene, but this time with a fascinating focus on Jesus. But before we work our way through the text, I think it would be helpful to spend a few minutes in Daniel chapter 7 in order to get some background on our, our passage today. Daniel received his visions while the children of Israel were in exile. After the northern kingdom had, had been uh, erased and the southern kingdom of Judah was decimated by Babylon, then with many survivors being hauled off into captivity. So to, to put it in the vernacular of today's business world, Daniel was written in a time when Yahweh's stock had been downgraded to sell. You see, in those days, people assessed the power of a nation's God by how well they did in battle against their enemies. And so since Israel was all but wiped out, people didn't think too much of the Jewish God in Daniel's day. But in Daniel's prophecy, a clear message is proclaimed. Yahweh is 
the true king of heaven, and his kingdom will one day come to dominate this world. Daniel 7 starts off with a description of four great beasts that come up out of the sea. And these beasts represent the evil world empires that run their course throughout history, with the, the last beast being more ferocious than the others. And, and while Daniel is he's thinking about this fourth beast in particular, and as he's thinking about it, he writes in Daniel 7 verse 9, As I looked, thrones were placed, and the Ancient of Days took his seat. And skipping down to verse 13, I saw in the night visions, and behold, with the clouds of heaven, there came one like a son of man. And he came to the Ancient of Days and was presented before him. And to him was given dominion and glory and a kingdom that all peoples, nations, and languages should serve him. His dominion is an everlasting dominion which shall not pass away, and his kingdom one that shall not be destroyed. <clears throat> now, Daniel is distressed by this vision, and so he asked a bystander to explain to him, well, what, what, what does this mean? And so the man said, well, these four great beasts are four kings who shall arise out of the earth, but the saints of the Most High shall receive the kingdom. And possess the kingdom forever, forever and ever. So it's kind of interesting. In the vision, originally it said, well, one like the Son of Man, Jesus, comes before the Ancient of Days, God the Father, and he receives an eternal kingdom. But then in the interpretation, believers, called the saints of the Most High, believers also are recipients of this eternal kingdom. And it says in verse 21, as I looked, this horn, he's part of the fourth beast, this horn made war with the saints and prevailed over them until the ancient of days came and judgment was given for the saints of the Most High. And the time came when the saints possessed the kingdom. <clears throat> now, in, in verse 25, it, it even says that this enemy of God's people will, quote, wear out, unquote, the saints. But it's of no consequence, for they will arise triumphant in the end. Verse 26, But the court shall sit in judgment, and his dominion shall be taken away, and the kingdom and the dominion and the greatness of the kingdoms under the whole heaven shall be given to the people of the saints of the Most High. His kingdom shall be an everlasting kingdom, and all dominions shall serve and obey him. So, in a nutshell, Daniel 7 presents this image to us of Jesus coming before God to receive a glorious eternal kingdom. A kingdom which ends up also belonging to his saints who seem to have uh, suffered for their devotion to their Lord. So with that background laid, let's see how this maybe sheds some light on our passage today. So let's come back to Revelation 5. Terence read, we'll read it again. Then I saw in the right hand of him who was seated on the throne a scroll written within and on the back, sealed with seven seals. And I saw a mighty angel proclaiming with a loud voice, Who is worthy to open the scroll and break its seals? And no one in heaven or on earth or under the earth was able to open the scroll or to look into it. And I began to weep loudly because there was no one found worthy to open the scroll or to look into it. Now, as usual, 
Commentators disagree on the identification of the scroll. No big surprise. Some consider it to be the, the Lamb's Book of Life. Uh, others believe it represents the Old Testament scriptures whose true meaning is now to be revealed in, in Jesus. Uh, but I believe, I believe the best evidence supports the notion that this scroll here in chapter 5 is actually the same scroll that we see later on in Revelation chapter 10. Now, if you're curious and you happen to wander over to Revelation 10, don't be distracted by this scroll being called a, a little scroll in three of the verses, and then in another verse it's just called a scroll. For the Greek words in that passage, they're, they're all interchangeable. It's, it's all the same scroll in, throughout chapter 10. And likely, I'm suggesting, it's, it's the same scroll that we have here in chapter 5. So in chapter 5, the scroll is sealed. In 10 verse 2, chapter 10, it says that the scroll is now open. And that makes sense because it's in chapter 6 that we will see that the seals are broken. Now, if these are one and the same scroll in chapters 5 and 10, then what, what's, what's written on the scroll? Again, the most obvious answer is that the scroll contains God's plan for how he is going to judge and save the world. And more specifically, it, it will show how God intends to use the Lamb's victory as the means by which he will establish his rule over all creation. Now, this division in Daniel 7, it, it, it portrays God giving Jesus all dominion and authority. I mean, that's really clear. But... But it's, it's only in the New Testament, it's only in the New Testament that we learn that this exaltation of Christ comes through his death and resurrection. Because the Father was pleased with the Son's sacrifice as a worthy payment for our sin, that's why Jesus was exalted to his right hand in heaven. Now this, this idea that God's victory over evil, this idea that it, that it comes through sacrifice, this wasn't understood in Daniel's day. Uh, you know, maybe that's, maybe that's why, uh, you know, he was told, well, just seal it up for now, because you guys don't quite get this concept yet. But you, Daniel, shut up the words and seal, seal the book until the time of the end. Many will, shall run to and fro, and knowledge shall increase. You see, the, the book of Daniel talks a fair bit about God's eternal reign coming to this earth, but... but it's, only in the coming of Christ do we learn that God's victory is achieved, it's achieved through suffering. It's achieved through dying, not, not killing. The prophetic messenger, he, he tries to explain it to Daniel. Back in, in Daniel chapter 12, verse 7, he starts talking about suffering again. He says, when the shattering of the power of the holy people, okay, so these, the holy people are being shattered. When the shattering of the power of the holy people comes to an end, all these things would be finished. But Daniel, he's still very confused. So he writes, I heard, but I did not understand. And then I said, oh, my Lord, what shall be the outcome of these things? And he said, go your way, Daniel, for the words are shut up and sealed until the time of the end. <clears throat> well, according to the New Testament, the end times are right now. The church age. That's very clear in the New Testament. And in John's revelation... We are about to see this scroll unsealed, and we're about to learn uh, of, of God's battle plan for establishing his kingdom. Now, but before we consider this in more detail, one can't help but notice 
The similarity of, uh, especially if you're an Old Testament buff, the similarity between John's scroll story and, and that of Ezekiel's. Uh, listen to Ezekiel 2, or read along here with me. God's talking to Ezekiel, says, But you, son of man, open your mouth and eat what I give you. And when I look, behold, a scroll of a book. And he spread it before me, and it had writing on the front and on the back, and there were written on it words of lamentation and mourning and woe. And he said to me, Son of man, eat this scroll and go speak to the house of Israel. So I opened my mouth and I ate it. And it was in my mouth as sweet as honey. Again, if you compare that to what it says in Revelation 10, the similarities are patently obvious. Both John's and Ezekiel's scrolls, it says that they're written on both sides, which in biblical terminology, that usually means it's some, some harsh judgments are coming. Both prophets are told to eat the scroll so they can better communicate God's word to their people. And, and, and both John and Ezekiel said that it tasted sweet as honey in their mouth as they ate it. No, I got to apologize. Sorry, we're kind of getting ahead of ourselves. For in our text, the scroll is still fully secured with seven seals. And there appears to be no one worthy to break these seals, to open it up. And John is quite upset about this. In fact, he's weeping loudly. To which one of the 24 elders says, Weep no more. Behold, the lion of the tribe of Judah, the root of David, has conquered so he, so, so that he can open the scroll and its seven seals. This is good news for John. Someone is worthy to open this, this thing up. The lion, the lion of the tribe of Judah, he, he has conquered so, so he can do it. Well, that, that, that sounds about right. You know, when, when Jacob blessed his sons in Genesis 49... He said that someone from Judah would be the ruler of God's people. The scepter shall not depart from Judah, it's written, nor the ruler's staff from between his feet until tribute comes to him. Now, the scepter was a symbol of conquering power and authority. The Jews expected their conquering hero, their Messiah, to come from the tribe of Judah, and particularly from the line of the great King David. Isaiah chapter 11, it talked about this. It talked about this individual restoring the created order and causing the earth to be filled with the knowledge of the Lord. And the designation? Lion. Well, that sounds awesome. He is going to tear his enemies to shreds. But then, but then in one of the greatest reversals of theological understanding, after hearing about this conquering mighty lion, John turns and sees a slaughtered lamb. Revelation 5, 6, And between the throne and the four living creatures and among the elders, I saw a lamb standing as though it had been slain with seven horns and with seven eyes, which are the seven spirits of God sent out into all the earth. The lion has conquered, indeed, but he has done so in the role of a sacrificial lamb. You see, this redefines or re-images the notion of Yahweh's victory in the world. We would have never written it this way. The slaughtered lamb defeats God's enemies. 
conquering by being conquered? See, I'm looking puzzled because that, that's, that's a puzzling concept to the, to the natural mind. See, and even to maybe biblical scholars, because in the Old Testament, God's future victory, it often sounded like the rescue of his people that involved killing all his enemies. But when Yahweh came as a baby in a manger, and that baby grew up and started preaching about the kingdom of God, he began to explain a new paradigm of victory, a new way to do battle. And it sounds something like this. Matthew 5. You have heard that it was said, you shall love your neighbor and hate your enemy. But I say to you, love your enemies and pray for those who persecute you. Now when the Apostle Paul, he he echoed this idea when he was writing Romans. And in Romans chapter 12, he was actually quoting Proverbs 25. and And he said this, if your enemy is hungry, feed him. If he is thirsty, give him something to drink. Now here's the battle. Here's the fighting part. So in so doing, you will heap burning coals on his head. You hear the, the battle language? You're going to heap burning coals in his head, but that's, that's how you do it. And then he, to clarify, Paul adds, do not be overcome by evil, but overcome evil with good. Overcome evil with good. I guess... Paul and John agree. God's purposes for creation are accomplished by the suffering of righteous people doing good things. That's how the battle is won. It should not surprise us that Christ's death would achieve God's victory. The pages of the Old Testament bleed profusely. Animals slain for Adam and Eve's covering. Abraham's call to sacrifice Isaac, the whole mosaic illegal, sorry, not illegal, legal system, sorry, and and clear teaching in Isaiah about a, a suffering, a suffering servant who is at the heart of God's redemptive plan for his people, Isaiah 53 in particular, you know, that crushed for our iniquities sort of thing. When we sing the hymn, there's power in the blood, we are speaking the truth. The slaughtered lamb has power. His seven horns represent his full power. His seven eyes, which are the seven spirits of God, epitomize that his work is being done in the fullness of the Holy Spirit, just as Isaiah chapter 11 predicted. And and he is about to be worshipped in the same way as the one who sits on the throne. Verse 7. And he went and took the scroll from the right hand of him who was seated on the throne. And when he had taken the scroll, the four living creatures and the 24 elders fell down before the lamb, each holding a harp and golden bowls full of incense, which are the prayers of the saints. Again, reflecting, remember Daniel, reflecting Daniel's vision of God the Father giving the Son all authority and dominion in in the form of an eternal kingdom. Well, here in Revelation 5, we've got this this truth being displayed by a gesture. 
And the gesture is God passing the sealed scroll from his right hand into the hand of Jesus. And and as he does this, uh, a huge cycle of praise begins. It starts with the four living creatures and 24 elders, but, but then it grows from there. As they did with God in chapter 4, the creatures and the elders now fall down before the Lamb. And it says the elders are holding harps, that's because they're going to sing a song. And it also says that they're holding these golden bowls of incense, which signify the prayers of the saints. Well, you may, well what does that mean? What, what, what is this, prayers of the saints? Well, most likely these are the prayers of believers who have modeled But Jesus taught us to pray, thy kingdom come. Thy kingdom come, thy will be done on earth as it is in heaven. And and how is this kingdom coming? Well, the worshipers tell us in their song. Verse 9, and they sang a new song saying, Worthy are you to take the scroll and open its seals for you were slain. And by your blood you redeemed, or ransomed, sorry, people for God from every tribe and language and people and nation. And you have made them a kingdom and priests to our God, and they shall reign upon the earth. This phrase, new song, uh, used a lot in the Old Testament. Every time it's used, it's usually it's during a celebration of God bringing about a victory in a battle. So clearly, these worshipers are celebrating Jesus' victory. So in chapter 4, we we realize that God is receiving all this worship because he's our great creator. Now in chapter 5, Jesus is worshipped because he was slain. His death has made him worthy, empowering him to open the seals and bring about God's kingdom on earth. Bearing the Wounds of sacrificial slaughter. He stands mighty in power, ready for action. You see, in one brilliant stroke, John portrays the central theme of Revelation. Victory through sacrifice. Victory through sacrifice. God overcomes this world not through the show of force, but through the suffering and death of Jesus, the faithful witness. Through Christ's death, it says we are ransomed, purchased to become God's people. Now, you know, again, if you know the Old Testament, that, that's, that is covenant election kind of language, and it was used in the past of Israel. And now it's being transferred to uh, the, every tribe, people of every tribe, tongue, and people, and, and nation. So this is clearly the fulfillment of the Abrahamic covenant that was uh, recorded in Genesis 12.3. God said to Abraham, through you or in you, all the families of the earth shall be blessed. And then when the worshipers, when they're quoting Exodus 19, that's, that's right in the middle of the Exodus. That's the birth of the nation stuff. When they're, we're quoting Exodus 19 saying, God's people have been made a kingdom and priests. Well, they're declaring Jesus as the Passover lamb of the new exodus. And when they say that his people will reign upon the earth, well, they're just affirming the fulfillment of Daniel chapter 7. Judgment will be given in favor of the saints. And then what John sees must have just about blown his mind. 
angels, impossible to number, bellowing out their praise and worship to the Lamb. Then I looked and I heard around the throne and the living creatures and the elders, the, and, uh, sorry, elders, the voice of many angels numbering myriads of myriads and thousands of thousands, saying with a loud voice, worthy is the Lamb who was slain to receive power and wealth and wisdom and might and honor and glory and blessing. Look at that, seven. <laughs> Big surprise. The, the angels, they're, they're a new addition since chapter 4. They, they show up in an innumerable multitude and they echo the worthiness of Christ. Worthiness of Christ because of his sacrifice. And since their praise here in 5 verse 12 sounds so similar to the praise of God in chapter 4 verse 11, we see again how the, the new song, or sorry, the old song is made new. Everything that was ascribed to Yahweh, to the Father, is now being ascribed to Jesus. The incarnate Lord, incarnate Lord is acclaimed with a tribute that rightly belongs to the one true God of Israel. This is not polytheism. The Son shares in the divine identity of the Father. In other words, Jesus is God. And we go, okay. <laughs> Yeah, well, no big deal, of course. But, folks, to the believers of John's day, this is big news. This is big news. And if there's any confusion in the matter, this, this, this chorus of praise is meant to clear the water. See, Jesus already called himself, back in Revelation 1.17, he called himself the first and the last. Now, when he was doing that, he was quoting probably one of the most... Um, heavy monotheistic passages in the Old Testament, Isaiah 44, 6, where Yahweh said, I'm the, uh, I'm the, you know, the first and the last. And now Jesus is saying, I'm the first and the last. But, and we, okay, yeah, we get it. But historically, it took the church, took the church until A.D. 325, over 200 years after what we're, you know, this, this was what it was written, until the Council of Nicaea, it took till that long until the church officially grasped and accepted the doctrine of the deity of Christ. You have to kind of put your mind into the, you know, what these folks are reading, what they're hearing, and how profound it is for them. Now, every character in this worship story, but they already know that, and the worship crowd, it's growing. As we heard, verse 13, and I heard every creature in heaven and on earth and under the earth, and in the sea, and all that is in them, saying to him who sits on the throne and to the Lamb, be blessing and glory, honor and glory and might forever and ever. And the four living creatures said, Amen. And the elders fell down and worshipped. What we have here in these verses is a beautiful theatrical rendition of what Paul declared in Philippians chapter 2, when he was quoting Isaiah 45, and he was applying it to Jesus' exaltation. You know this passage. And being found in human form, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. Therefore God has highly exalted him and bestowed on him the name that is above every name, so that at the name of Jesus, every knee should bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth. 
And every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. Beautiful. Notice also how this scene here, this throne scene, is, uh, it's so structured that the, the worship of the Lamb leads to the worship of God and the Lamb together. Again, John is not presenting Jesus as an alternative object of worship alongside God, but as one who shares in all the glory due to God. And what is so obvious to us now was not so obvious to the folks in John's day. Namely, Christ's work is the work of God. You see, Old Testament prophecies, they talked about the coming of God, especially like passages like Isaiah 40 and Isaiah 62, talks about God coming to, to his people. Or even Malachi. See, in Malachi 3.3, 3, where it says, the Lord is coming to his temple. Well, when, you know, that's talking about Jesus. That's talking about Jesus in his first coming when he came to the temple. And he found it defiled. And so he predicted its destruction, as well as the fact that he is coming again to complete the rule of God over all creation. A perfect seven times he, he mentions his return in the book of Revelation. And as, I, as I've endeavored to communicate here this morning, we, we need to understand that Christ's sacrificial death belongs to the way God rules the world. When we think of God's power and majesty and we think of ruling, we think of victory, like our, our human mind, we're, we're always kind of, I think we're kind of thinking more violence. <laughs> That's kind of where our brain this sort of goes. But Christ's sacrificial death belongs to the way God rules the world. The greatest demonstration of God's power is in the victory that Christ won at the cross. The symbol of the slaughtered lamb is no less of a divine symbol than the symbol of the one who sits on the throne. And God is on the throne, but he is present in this world as the lamb who conquers by suffering. Christ's suffering witness and sacrificial death are the key events in God's conquest of evil and the establishment of his kingdom on earth. Even more than the judgments which issue from the throne in heaven, they constitute God's rule on earth. And moreover, Christ's presence with his people who continue his witness, who follow in his model of self-sacrifice, is also God's presence in the world. Like Jesus, we are called to be faithful witnesses to the truth. Like him, we are beckoned to take up our cross daily, lose our lives, lose our lives for others, and lovingly bear witness to his saving grace. Even even if it results in tribulation. As we know, many of our brothers and sisters around the world, as we're praying for this month, that they're experiencing. It's, it's the complete norm in so many countries in this world, even though we, in many ways, don't have a clue about it. For it is in this mode of sacrifice that God's kingdom will come to this earth. Lives will be changed as they are drawn to the power of the cross and the beauty of our faithful witness to the truth about Jesus. You folks, this is what it means to overcome. This is what it means to conquer, to be victorious. This is how we win the battles against our enemies. Overcome evil with 
good. So if we're thinking about overcoming the enemy of sin within us, we win that battle by bringing our temptations to the cross, resting in the power of Jesus' blood to give us, give us that victory. And see, practically speaking, victory over sin, it, it always comes through dying. Dying to self. Dying to selfish desires. Thinking more highly of others than ourselves. And when we think about overcoming the enemy of sin, by, by, by good, Th- think of what Paul says in Philippians 4.8. To overcome sin in our lives, we also need to replace the evil in our minds with good things. You know that passage, that which is true, that which is honorable, right, pure. Overcome evil with good. And, and if we're thinking about, say, maybe some more tangible enemies in our lives, maybe someone at work who's particularly hostile towards you. Maybe it's someone in social media. Maybe you have a few enemies there. Or just maybe our entire evil culture at large. We win these battles, folks, by overcoming evil with good. This is how we follow our leader and commander into battle against the evil one. As Revelation 12, 11 reminds us, and they have conquered him, that is Satan, by the blood of the lamb, by the word of their testimony, for they loved not their lives, even unto death. Bow with me in prayer. Lord, we thank you for your word. Thank you for its power. Give us a clear glimpse of this victory that you brought us, Jesus, that it came through dying, through selflessness, through sacrifice. It came by doing good. And Lord, as we face the enemies of sin, or even more as we tangible enemies in our lives, I pray that you would just bring this truth into our hearts to understand how these battles, how these, these battles are won. just pray that you'd give us the power to sacrifice, to do the good. In Jesus' name, amen. Well, thanks for listening in to the preaching ministry of Nest Baptist, where we seek to equip people to love God and love others. If you would like more information about what we do and why we do it, please check out our website at nestbaptist.com where you will find links to all of our ministries, weekly updates, contact information for our staff, and a button to donate. Your donations go to making resources like this possible and helps us in many other ways in reaching our surrounding community with the good news of Jesus Christ. So thanks for listening. We hope to see you soon.